Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this episode, my guest is Harriet Klein. Harriet is a multi-award-winning short story writer who released her debut novel, This Shining Life, in the summer of 2021. This interview was recorded in mid-August 2021, a few weeks after Harriet's novel had been published in the UK. So I'm here with Harriet Klein. Good evening, Harriet. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Hi. Yeah, hello. And um, first question, as always, what are we drinking? Well, what we have here is hot chocolate, only it's not actually really hot chocolate. I just make it with cocoa and hot water and a dash of milk like you would in a cup of tea. There's no sugar and there's no heated milk. So, yeah, I'm going to have my first taste of that it might be a bit of a niche taste, but I know like it's it. nice. It's actually more thirst quenching yeah. because when you have it with full milk, it's quite creamy. It's quite rich. But no, that's very nice. And I don't think it needs extra sugar. So how did you come across this as a drink, making hot chocolate like tea? Is this something you've had from childhood? Or is this something that developed recently? It's probably about 10 years. It's because I try to have as little sugar as I can. Right. And I am very fond of chocolate. And... <laughs> I just want that chocolate taste sometimes. And this, mm-hmm. for me, hits the spot. I'm not saying I don't eat chocolate because I no. <laughs> <laughs> So how often do you drink this hot chocolate? Um, every is, night. So this is, this is your day-to-day drink. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And is it something that you, you write with? So is it something after your writing day or is it something whilst you're writing or just before you start? Sometimes it's a reward if I've had a really good day. But actually, sometimes it, if I'm just... I need a hot drink and I've, I've done tea for the day. Yeah. That's the next step. Yeah. Something without caffeine, something just nice and relaxing for the evening. Oh, that's lovely. And where am I speaking to you right now? I see a lot of books in the background. Is this an office? Is this a corner of a room? Where, where are you at the moment? Well, it is my writing space, mm-hmm. um, but it's quite artfully arranged for Zoom calls so that all the books show in the background. <laughs> <laughs> where it actually is, is at the bottom of the stairs uh, to our <laughs> attic. Oh, right. um, and the other side of the camera, there are a huge amount of instruments. So my partner's a music therapist, and so all his instruments are stacked up right up to the ceiling. And there is also a monster, sort of stuffed creature that is also behind the camera. And that does overlook my writing wherever I go. It was a creature that I actually dreamt about once. And I, and I drew a picture of it and showed it to my sister. And then the next time I saw her, she'd made it out of a kind of She'd cut up an old car wash sponge and a leather jacket. And she's so, made this creature. So I need to find out whether this is a good or bad thing. So was this a nightmare or was this a pleasant dream? Was this a fun dream? Or was this something from your nightmares that your sister was like, I'm going to manifest this in reality? Luckily, not quite a nightmare. I think I would told her that I'd had lots of dreams about creatures in ponds. And we talked about the pond being your unconscious and what yeah. might come out of your unconscious. So... You know, I was trying to welcome it. And when I welcomed this creature and when I showed her that picture, I said, look, it's sad, but it's frightening. And so that's exactly what she's done. She's it's given it teeth, but this kind of very sad face and sad eyes. Okay. So it's not uh, a form of inspiration. Is it your writing goblin to make sure you're, you're working, make sure you don't <laughs> procrastinate? That's exactly what it is. But it also, it just reminds me, I just have to glance at it. And I think, yeah, your unconscious is in charge. You allow your unconscious to do the work oh, and right. then the right things will come up. So it is quite meaningful for me to have it. Oh, that's me. nice. Yeah, that's really interesting. We'll come on to your planning in a minute, but it's interesting how you allow your unconscious mind to inform your writing. And so is this a shared workspace by the attic stairs? Is there a lot, is it quite isolated or is there family noise? In lockdown, there's been a lot more family noise, but (laughs) generally it is my kind of private space. So I can shut the door. I do work. When the house is empty, I'll work anywhere in the house, but this is my hideaway. Okay. Now, uh, you've had your first novel uh, published this summer so uh, congratulations first of all that's uh, yeah, a great feat um, but how long have you actually been writing creatively for? Probably all my life I think I knew mm. that I wanted to be a writer from when I was really young and then after I'd been to university I 
I was a writer in residence actually at the Isle of Wight Hospital and there I did quite a lot of my own writing as well as encouraging other people, patients and things to write. So I did quite a lot then but I never really quite got as far as I wanted. I'd written a novel, I'd written a few short stories but I wasn't really very happy with them and then I had children and I gave up a bit and then after I'd had children, I just thought, right, I really want to do this. I really feel like the time is it. And so then probably I've been working seriously on writing for about 10 years now. Okay, that's excellent. I definitely think writing is in the bones. I think a lot of writers like you, they're natural born storytellers. It's the evolution of uh, humanity, you know, sort of around the, the campfire, you know, in the early tribes, you know, having those storytellers. It's definitely a vocation that, that comes out. So it's, it's good to see that's definitely manifested in you. Now, you said that you had written a novel before, but hadn't been particularly ha- happy with it, as well as also uh, writing short stories. When writing this story, that eventually got published did it feel at the time there's something special about this concept or was it just your state of mind that you really wanted to complete this as a project or was it more that once it was finished it was just people's reactions to it was you know sort of far greater than anything that had happened before I think I knew when I got the idea that I needed to write it so I had no doubt in my mind that I was going to finish. But I also knew as I as it emerged and with my process with the writing, I think I thought this is going to work. I just knew it was going to work. But also I had this mission that I was going to tell my truth. Before, I think I'd been thinking, oh, I want to write a story about this. I want to write a story about that. And this really felt like it came from the heart, that this is my truth and I have something to say here. And I think that was when I realised I've actually got something to say, was when I felt, yes, this is going to work. So it's a very personal story and certainly there's a lot of high emotion in the story. Um, so is that so? that was from direct experience? That was through events in your life that are directly tallied to the book? Yes, I mean, nothing in the book that happened, uh, that happens in the book actually happened in real life, apart from the only thing that did happen is that a friend of mine, very dear friend, did die. And I was present at the death. And it was that experience of being present at the death that inspired the whole book. So and I was observing all the other people around the deathbed and thinking about their reactions and how they were grieving. And that was what made me want to write a book about grief. But certainly it's still fictional. Yes, no, no, absolutely. I I think when dealing with such raw emotions, it it needs to be fictional to be true if that makes sense because I think when you're writing characters you have that creative license and to allow things to evolve at a natural pace for you where if you're dealing with real people and real individuals there may be true events that they don't want to be represented in and you can amalgamate uh, real people's personalities into one character for convenience and also blur the lines of reality and fiction. Yeah, and I think fiction allows you to actually tell a truth by putting a kind of level of metaphor in there. Instead of just blatantly saying, if you're feeling very buttoned up, you'll find it hard to grieve. You can actually show that through incidents that demonstrate that these people are buttoned up, if that's what you want to show. So I think fiction definitely felt more true than, yeah. than you know, just what had happened, which was just people crying, really. <laughs> yeah. And uh, really interested in the fact that there's a neurodiverse child in the story. Was that, uh, again, based on people that you knew or uh, what was the decision to? Well, I mean, I am close to a number of um neurodiverse people um so it's something I'm kind of aware of and you know I love a lot of people who are neurodiverse so it's it's always there on my mind so he the character Ollie is not really like anyone I know Mm. actually he very quickly became himself but I wanted to show I was thinking about how grief is 
one of the things that happens to all of us when you when somebody dies is that you simply can't understand it and you're trying to figure it out everybody who's grieving goes through their own journey and I really wanted to show that's one journey that somebody may be on in the process of grief yeah no absolutely and so having a lot of friends who are neurodiverse or surrounded by neurodiverse people, were they able to help make that authentic? And did you have them as kind of beta readers as uh, you were developing the book? I really wanted to keep it based on how I felt the character should be. And I did it very instinctively, really, through knowing people. And I did sometimes ask some of the people that I know just to say am I right here Mm. Um, and I was told quite clearly when I wasn't but I I don't know still really whether it's right because I think people experience it differently so whatever Ollie's like he's not going to be like particularly like anyone else who's autistic so no that that's absolutely fine did you take a long time to flesh out the characters before you started writing the story uh, or did they evolve naturally through the writing process? I think they evolved naturally. I think I became aware of where they were going quite quickly. The thing that I really did have to research a bit more was dementia actually because I don't have so much experience of that so I really did have to think well what's that like in its very early stages and how do people experience it and it would have been very nice actually if I'd known someone to talk about that with I wasn't able to find anyone no that's okay when it comes to research you've said how a lot of it comes from you know, sort of the people you've known and interacted with but as you said with dementia an area that you didn't know is that a lot of online uh research you find any sort of particular websites or books uh, for reference that really helped you through the development? I tend to use online resources because they'll just take you in so many directions Mm. and I I actually also use fiction actually because I just think for getting the feel of of how things come, come across so I've looked at a lot of I think there's a Jane Gardam story where it had some, uh, I think it had someone's mother who's just at the very early stages in the same way that Gerald in the book is. So I, I looked at how she portrayed that and then looked up online what elements might be happening there. Was there any other challenges that you found writing this type of book? Because it's quite an emotional book. Were you prepped for that going in or was there quite an emotional toll? as you wrote it yeah there was an emotional toll but it was also I was still in the grieving process myself when I started writing it and it actually was almost like a luxury that it kept me in that process it kept me in touch with the person who died actually because I was still thinking about the effect it had on me and not just thinking right time to get on with my life yeah so in some ways it was like a gift to be Mm. able to keep that alive for myself yeah certainly writing can be a form of therapy and uh you know that that's good that it helped you so when you're starting from such an emotional point and you said at the beginning you knew you were going to finish this um book how long did it actually take from you starting writing to finishing and how was your emotional journey as a person from that how much closure was there on the death of a friend when finishing this book had you come to terms with that through the book or did it meet at the same end point as the book yeah I knew I was going to finish it and I think for me that kind of felt like there was a process to go through and I felt like you know Yes, I'm always going to have that sadness in my heart, but somehow when I get to the end of the book, I'll have got to a a milestone somehow with it. Mm. But also what I don't think I'd realised quite how uplifting the book was going to be and quite how much the character um, of the man who died was going to be so lovable And for me, that became like a sort of testament to the person who died. I mean, not that he is exactly like that person who died, but somehow it was almost like 
this is where I've placed him and he's now got somewhere for me to visit. Really. Mm. So it, it really felt very precious. What was that like when the book finished? It was, it was good. I, it, it, it was good. It wasn't, I didn't feel a kind of grief about that. I think I felt I've now got something mm. to believe in and to love. It was, you know, I suppose in a way, it's a bit like when you plant a tree or, mm. or a gravestone or when you scatter some ashes. This is my thing for this person. And you've mentioned on your website that you're a keen journaler and you write a lot of journals. How useful was it to maintain a journal through this journey and how much of the book was reliant on journal entries that you had made through that process? Yes, it was pretty reliant. Quite a lot of my journaling I can't actually read once I've read it actually. (laughs) Because I just write it down extremely fast. But that's the pleasure of it, is that it allows me to get everything out. So I took all my notebooks and I looked through them and it gave me the right feeling to get into. But what's more important for me, actually, is journaling during the process. Mm -hmm. So I do find that I have to, before I can do any useful writing, I do have to write basically a load of rubbish. So I have to start by just writing oh I'm really tired it's horrible it's raining I had a dream about blah blah and I just write complete random stuff and somehow that brings me completely present and I become very aware of where I am where my emotions are what's going on in my body and somehow that allows me to write better because I'm fully present. It sounds like stretching with the exercise it's that early stretch of just stretching the writing muscle Uh, That is a fascinating way of uh, doing it. I'm sure there are others, but that's the first time I've heard of doing that. And it sounds like you do that regularly. So do you go through that process every time you sit down for a writing session? Yeah, not every time. But actually, as soon as I realise that I'm struggling, I just think, oh, yeah, it's because you didn't do it. So I will do that. And, And if I'm really struggling, I will even go a little bit wilder and draw pictures and I'll write with my left hand. I'm right handed. So I'll write with my left hand or write with my eyes shut or turn the book to one side so that anything just to make it feel a bit more strange to me, really, and to get my brain going. And I think that analogy of stretching is absolutely brilliant. It is like that. And it's a bit like actors who go, it's a bit like that as well. (laughs) I think it's because there's a lot of uh, talk about alpha waves in the creative brain. And it's triggering it through a process where you're doing something physical that you don't have to think about. So that's why walking the dog or having a shower or just doing the dishes are all things that there's so much muscle memory involved that it just allows the creative mind to wander. But to write differently to write in almost like a conscious nonsense way it's writing left-handed and writing just what's on the forefront of the consciousness to loosen up the subconscious is fascinating I hope that there's members of the audience listening to this who have found all those other ways not working and then they're going I need to stretch. I need to do this. I need to do the Harriet Klein stretch and start writing gibberish. I'll tell you, there's another thing that happens to me when I'm doing that, which I also find really useful. But sometimes I'll start writing and I will make, I suppose what they are is Freudian slips. One of them that happened a lot for me was I would be trying to write, oh, there's something in my heart or, and I would write the word heard, or sometimes I'll write, I'll just write the wrong word, basically. Mm. And I thought the word, you know, having this heart and heard thing was really interesting. And it's like, I need to open my heart or I need to be heard. So I I will look at a mistake that I've written. I'll write so fast that the wrong word will come up. Mm. And then that makes me think, oh, I think I know exactly what is really wanting to be written now. Wow because it's accidentally on purpose written Tapping itself. into, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. It's such a stream of consciousness way of writing. Yeah, you think of Virginia Woolf, you think of To the Lighthouse, you think there are people who've had great success writing this. Mm-hmm. It's just so far removed from 
what a, a writing a manual, or, you know, sort of a masterclass on writing mm-hmm. might teach. So when you're writing, obviously you had the concept after this uh, tragic event that you wanted to write this book, but the I'm guessing the plot and the actual outline and structure of the book hadn't manifested itself. Is there any form of plan of how the events will unfold? Or is it very much, I sit down, I write, I see how it connects to what I wrote yesterday and how it might lead into what I write tomorrow? I'm definitely more of, I wrote in order to generate the characters and to feel that that there was something that I needed to say. But I would say once I'd got those characters there, I did think there has to be a story and it has to be more than this man died and some people were upset about it. So I then had to create the story. And I, once the idea was there, I still hadn't really got a structure. And one of the things about this book is it has got quite an unusual structure. Some of the things, the events are revisited. Um, so you hear them from one point of view and then you hear them from someone else's point of view. And I didn't know that was going to happen really until really late on. But once I knew, it just completely fell into place. It was like a piece of magic, actually. Mm. And what happened was that I was really putting off writing the actual scene of death. I'd written everybody's reaction to it. I'd written the lead up to it. And then I thought, no, I have to write the moment when this person dies. And I wrote it and it was really difficult and painful. And then I wrote it. And then as soon as it was done, I thought that is the end of part one. And I absolutely knew that was the end. And then from that point on, the structure fell into place. It was going to be how many parts and it just worked. Mm. And I think it must have been there all along, but because I was putting off writing this painful scene, it couldn't show itself to me. Yeah. Now that's fascinating. So on a day-to-day writing basis, how do you like limit yourself? How do you know... Um, when you've done for the day is it that you uh, only write for a certain length of time or is there a certain word count or is it just emotive it's just you have a feeling of that's all I've got today I think it's probably that what I do is I tend to start and I'll write quite a lot and then I'll have a break and then I'll write a little bit less and then I'll have another break and then I'll write a little bit less and those sort of second third fourth amounts they get the more the more small they are then I know I'm finished i never get a second wind I think I know I'm done when the front of my head just feels like it's turned soggy and I can't think anymore so do you start at the same time each day when you're having a writing day I try to it does really help me to have a routine so I try to be at the desk by half past seven in the morning well right and so how long is a typical writing day for you after all the break what time is it kind of no more breaks today I will probably finish about half past three to four the breaks get longer and And you mentioned like is that the time to to get a break or is it just more physical I'm hungry I'm thirsty I need the toilet what triggers a break for you Hunger is a really big one, but also I think the best, my ideal writing day would be I write something amazing and I have a break because I know that that bit's done and it's Mm. really good. That probably happens about every two months. It's mostly hunger or it's mostly I just need a break. I cannot think anymore. And when I come back to this, I need to come back to it and hopefully I'll be able to, to gather myself. And when you step away from your desk, because, again, you see a lot of different conflicting advice around this, do you prefer to leave it mid-sentence? Or you know, is it like, no, I need to finish a paragraph, or I'm just going to finish this scene or this chapter? Do you like to leave it finished, or do you like to have it partial way? I think I will stop when I can't stand it any longer, so it will probably be mid-sentence. Oh, right. Um, Normally, because I do quite a lot of writing by hand, when I know I need a break, it normally goes. And then he walked across the room. Oh, this is rubbish in capitals. <laughs> and then I walk away. And actually, I do that on the computer as well. I, you know, I, really, I put big notes on it. They say, oh, shut up. And then I walk away. <laughs> Having it mid-dynamic like dynamic flow of the scene, 
do you find that enormously uh, helpful for when you return? Because I, I, yeah. I, that's what I hear. So if you leave it mid-sentence or if you leave it mid-something, you can pick up exactly where you left off. No, I don't think that really works for me. I like that idea, but I think it's usually left in such a grump. And probably because it's deteriorating at that point anyway, I'll normally read what I've written so far and then probably start from a little bit further back. Is there a notable part where you can say, oh, this is where it started running away from me? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you can, I can sense the tiredness and the irritation. So you don't have daily targets? No, I tried that and it was I was just writing dross in order mm. to get the... I, I think it's better for me if I just write what needs to be written. And when you walk away and you get, oh, that is rubbish or whatever, you have these little breaks, is there any point in a project where you completely lose confidence in yourself and you just think you're a terrible writer, why did I even start this? and get some imposter syndrome. And is that something that happens regularly to you? Or is this something that happened in one or two instances that really sticks in the mind? I would say it's absolutely happening to me now with book number two. What was really magical about writing This Shining Life is I didn't have that. And I think that was something to do with my emotional connection to it as well. And then this time round, and I think it's also the pressure of having to write second book and I found myself trying to second guess what people have liked about this book and I've got to do something like it but still different and I think uh, because of that I've actually found it really difficult to believe in the the book that is the second book and that project so that is a struggle. I look at my sentences and I think no that's a good sentence but is the whole project good enough and I definitely am in a place of doubt with that having said that I think that a little bit of doubt is a really good thing I think it can keep things very open and it can test you so I'm trying quite hard not to worry about that too much but imposter syndrome is really difficult because I think it undermines your sense of of purpose actually Mm. Yeah, it's definitely, from all the writers I've spoken to, it almost seems like a rite of passage. And the amount of writers that I talk to that go, yes, I completely second-guess myself. I feel like I'm going to get found out. I feel that this is a complete waste of time. Only to be told by their nearest and dearest, you do this on every book. And the writers would be like, I don't remember feeling this bad or this insecure ever. And everyone around them is like, we're not gaslighting you. It's literally about the same amount of word count, whether it's a third of the way through or two thirds of the way through or a certain number of words, you get this. And I think it may just be that experience. I think that's absolutely right. And I think for me, the point I get it is when I haven't got the structure completely ready and it's not clear how what I'm going to say is going to fit into a story. And I think I'm at that point now. So I'm thinking I'll never make it into a book. I've just got a whole lot of writing. Mm. And I just, I think the way to deal with it is trust. And that is mm. such a hard thing. And it, you, it also means that you have to keep alive that possibility that maybe it won't work. Yeah. You know, otherwise, you don't have it. It's coming back to it's a vocation writing. Mm. And it's something that you have to do. And yeah. the best writers, it's it's in their bones, you know, that I have to get the story out. And then, so it's horrible when you question that, because then you're just thinking, does that, what does that say about me? If I can't actually do this, and yet I'm compelled to do it, where am I going to be? So I think that adds that extra layer onto that imp- on imposter syndrome, really. Yeah, the only thing that I can say to you and all of our listeners is... There are authors at the top of the game who feel exactly the same. They can have the nearest and dearest and all of their fans screaming, you have written some of the most amazing characters, some of the most amazing stories. We have faith in you. We believe in you. Mm. That can't change the feeling inside you. No. And I think I actually thought it would go away when I got published. I thought, oh, I'll be allowed to write then because I'll be a published author. But actually it got worse. Mm. 
um, because I thought, oh no, but I've got to write just like a published author now. Yeah. How long did This Shining Life take to write? From when you started the page to when you'd finished a draft and you're like, okay, I'm going to start sending this off to people. That was, I think, two and a half years. Yeah. It might even be three years by the time I, yeah, I think it was probably three years um, by the time I started sending out to my agent. Mm. Yeah. Nicole Krauss was seven years between her first and her second, I think. Mm. And in the end, there's nothing we can do. I, I'm trying my best to get this second book out. I think the mistake I made actually was I thought, oh, I'm going to have to do this really quickly. And I didn't actually give myself time once I got the book deal to just take in the fact that my first book was going to be published. I thought, oh, my first book's going to be published. I better write the second. Mm. And I literally didn't take even like a week to just take in this huge event and I think that's partly what happened is that my it just fuzzled my brain you work part-time as well and so how's it been writing around a job has it been sort of fairly flexible is it just on your days off how, how do you manage the work-life balance now that you have a publisher and expectations. I'm very lucky that I do work part-time. That is a luxury and a privilege. And my job is I'm the Registrar of Births, Deaths and Marriages. So it's endlessly interesting, which is great. And I get to see people from every walk of life. So I'm completely engaged with people all the time. So that's really stimulating and lovely. But it's also a job with rules but there's only one way that you can register a birth and there's only one way you can register a death. And if you make a mistake, there's only one thing you can do. So it's really not easy, but I know what I'm doing always. So for me, it's just the perfect antidote for writing because when I'm writing, I don't know what I'm doing at all. And I'm going flying off in all sorts of different directions and I break rules and then I make rules. So I feel very lucky that I have this job that is very calming for the mind and yet at the same time stimulating. So I basically at the moment work two days a week as a registrar and then I have three days all in a row to write and then I have a weekend off, which is really wonderful. But the discipline for me is to really not think, oh, I'll go to the dentist on my day off or I'll meet someone for lunch or no, I'm sorry, I'm writing. It's not actually my days off. It's actually my other job. And the other thing I have to do is go, I am going to have a weekend. I'm not going to get up at seven o'clock and just do a few hundred words. I am going to have a weekend and have a rest. That's good. Do you still journal on the weekends? No, I have a lie-in, I do nothing, I don't think in words. That's good. That's it sounds very healthy as well. That's good. And is your working schedule the same now as it was when you began this shining life, or has that changed through that time? I did drop a day's work after I got my book deal, which is again an absolute luxury, and I feel very lucky to have been able to do that. And it just happened that it worked out very well for the office to have me work the beginning and end of the week and nobody else wanted to do that (laughs) Uh, because it's it's awful for taking a long weekend Mm. but it's perfect for me because it bookends my writing and Mm. it gives me three days straight so that I can actually get into a bit of a rhythm so it's office job Monday writing Tuesday Wednesday Thursday office job Friday oh wow Yeah, yeah yeah Yeah, and you're right. I don't think there's many people who want to say, yeah, I just want work Monday and Friday, please. <laughs> no, no long weekends. That's great. Um, so there's this old adage that writing is rewriting, but how do you rewrite your work? Do you complete drafts or do you just rework individual scenes? I generally, because I tend to think in episodes anyway and create yeah particular scenes I'll generally get a scene right and then move on but I won't get it absolutely perfect because I have learned through the editing process that you're just going to end up changing so much it's just pointless getting it totally word perfect Mm. I think I do have to have the scene itself right before I can go on to the next scene so I wouldn't just go right to the end of a draft no matter I have to have some things that I feel are kind of presentable really to myself Mm. and that I believe in 
And I think that's the problem for me with word counts is that it's no good if I don't believe in what I've written. And when you're going over these uh, episodes or scenes, how do you know when to stop? What is it? Do you uh, read it aloud? Is, is there a certain flow? I suppose it's when I know the tension is right. So when I know that if I was to read, yeah, I do read it aloud to myself to get the rhythm, but it's also that I need to know that I'm being taken somewhere. So I have to you know, imagine that I don't know what's happening and think, am I being taken anywhere in this scene? And as soon as I feel like, yeah, there's a parabola, really, we're going from this place to this place, then I know that scene is ready. And then I'll read it aloud to make sure that it doesn't sound clumsy, really. And then I won't do all the kind of polishing of sentences until I know the whole story is right. And was This Shining Life your first experience of an, a professional editor? And yeah. if so, how was that experience? Oh, it's lovely. It was absolutely <laughs> wonderful. Just this experience of somebody kind of getting out your book and saying, right, this works, this doesn't, and this kind of very intelligent eye on it. Just in, and, and being taken so seriously was absolutely wonderful. Plus having someone say, right, you do need to do this, and me thinking, really? Oh, I can't possibly do it. And then starting to do it and think, oh, she was completely right. That's absolutely transformed the book. It was really amazing. And also the other thing I quite enjoyed was pushing back because I'm not really a very argumentative person, but because it was my work, mm. I am, sometimes my editor would make a suggestion and I'd say, no, I'm not, I'm not changing that. And I quite enjoyed the whole process of arguing that back and forth because it really made me think, yes, there is a reason why I put that in the book. I want that there in that particular place for that reason. So it really made me feel much more sure of myself. But I really did enjoy having that input. And how long was the editing process once a professional editor involved in those rewrites? How long was that process for you? It was really lengthy, actually, because for two reasons. I had two editors, so we very quickly got a a deal in America as well as here. The two editors um, in America and, and here both decided to work together. So they discussed what they thought the main big points were that needed to be changed, the massive structural edits. They agreed then with me. I did one set and then I anticipated doing another set with my American editor, but that didn't happen because it turned out she was very ill. So I got as far as I could with the UK and then she said, right, now I'm ready to do some more deep editing with you. And I was doing that and then really tragically she died right when we were in the middle of doing these kind of rather big structural edits, which was like a second round. And it was awful. It was a really dreadful thing. And we were halfway through. So we had created, a, we'd created something that was changed, but it hadn't changed completely and I didn't really know where she was going with it so then I had to take everything out so it was actually really grueling and, and also obviously very upsetting so there ended up being basically an extra year of editing on this shining life which you know meant that I really worked on it and by the time I, I finished with it I really knew it was exactly how I wanted it but it was hard, it was really yeah. hard. no it sounded that's yeah. quite shocking and so from the submission draft to the final project, how do you feel, how, how do you feel about the changes and the story as it is now in published form versus what you first submitted? Well, I think it's a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> there was a character in, I had to take out a whole character, basically. Right. There was this character in there who was very wispy and um, I thought she was really interesting. She had curly hair that was always in a mess and she wasn't very confident, and which was me. Um, <laughs> um, once we took her out, it was just suddenly seemed a lot better novel, actually. So, yeah, I think it is better. It's a lot tighter. There's a lot more connection between the characters. And it was probably a tad darker, to be honest, from the first draft that I submitted. We've probably just made it slightly more pleasant. And when it came to 
sort of like the, the final versions. How involved were you in the marketing or the book covers? Because uh, it's a beautiful book. And the creation of that book cover and how it's marketed, how, how involved were you in that? I was given various versions of what, what might work for the cover. I found it quite hard to to really uh, know what was good because I felt like I don't know the marketing. Mm. And there was one cover that, we, that came up at the beginning, which I wasn't really that sure about. And I kept saying, oh, can we have it a bit more? Can there be a bit more shine to it? But I didn't have the confidence to say, no, I really don't like it because I thought they must have come up with it for a reason. and Maybe this is exactly the market they want to go for. But then when they presented me with the one that we've got now, I was just like, this is absolutely beautiful. And I know it's absolutely right. But in terms of a little bit of tweaking, can I have a, you know more pink flowers and that kind of thing? I did have a little bit of say there. Yeah. And I was really, and I think I had said, I'd love it if there was a magpie on the front. There was a bit of input, but I think it was teamwork really. And obviously yeah. the designer who's just done such a fantastic job. Yeah. And obviously, you know, it's, it's going down the traditional uh, publishing route. So they have... You know, a marketing department and getting it out in front of people but how comfortable are you in promoting your own work has that been something that you've done and how do you feel about it I was hoping that I wouldn't have to <laughs> and I don't feel very comfortable with it although as time goes on I'm getting much better uh, about it because I've just realized you have to and what I've realized because at first I thought, oh, well, I can't keep saying, oh, I've published a book and it's called This Shining Life. It just mm. felt really awkward. And I felt like I would be too much and people didn't want to hear it. And I've just realised what people don't want to hear is someone saying, oh, I've written a book, but it's, oh, well, you know, people actually do want to know. And it's just part of the job. What I didn't realise is you, you get yourself a lovely pitch when you're going for an agent. You, you write your elevator pitch and then you write your slightly longer pitch and you get all that perfect. And then I thought, oh, it's done now. Um, I've got an agent. But actually, you have to keep pitching it because you have to keep saying to a bookshop, do you want to stop my book? It's about a boy, blah, 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 mm. you know. So I've realised you've just got to not mind, you know, because I'm convinced that people don't want to hear me going on about it. But I think that's my imagination. And even if they don't, I've got to go, that's too bad. This is what mm. I'm doing. I'm going to try and get my book out there. And what's your opinion of social media as a published author now in 2021? Is it essential? It probably is, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't enjoy it. For me, it feels like being at a party and you're just trying to edge your way in all the time mm. and, you know, have your little say. And it just doesn't, I just don't enjoy it. But I think book Twitter and book Instagram are actually really quite lovely. Actually, people are really supportive. And I've met lots of writers through that and discovered new work to read and things. So I think it is really, I think it is pretty much essential. You've got to have a presence out there and you've got to find a way of being genuine I think you can really tell when someone's on there literally if the only thing they want to do is mention their book and nothing else but it's it, it doesn't feel like it nourishes me but I'm hoping that it nourishes the general kind of book world yeah I mean you, you mentioned there with book twitter and book instagram meeting other writers um do you feel now that you have a network of peers yeah, yeah, very much. I am on a Facebook book group for people who've debuted in twenty in 2021. And that, for me, because we do a lot of Zoom calls, has been best of all, because I do prefer that face-to-face -face, mm. um, interaction. But again, just being on this, it's a private group, and just people being able to say, oh, what do I say to my publicist? I don't like what they said, you know, about this, or how do I mention such and such? You know, so I found that really helpful, just sharing our woes and sharing our joy. Look at this, I'm in The Guardian, or whatever it is. So that's been really wonderful. But also just, yeah, Twitter has been really good just to, to see other people's journey as they've yeah. gone through their publishing life. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I can see the benefits of it, but also there is that dark side yeah. to Twitter when things are taken out of context or people take a disliking mm. to something you've written or how they've perceived a story that you've written. And, and I sometimes think people 
are very critical of others to avoid being criticised themselves. Yeah, and I think the other thing about Twitter is it's not all about what you say, but it's also about what you read. And I don't just go on there to to promote my book or to put my opinion about the environment out there. I, I also go on there to see what other people have got to say and what I can mm. learn. And I've learned an awful lot from other writers, from them saying, this is how I've approached this, or today I'm feeling like this. It's also a resource. Yes. Yeah, it can be very useful. And actually, I want to say, sort of, I have this belief that writers grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. Now, although you've, you're coming off the back of your first uh, published novel, you've been writing for 10 years. There's two things I want to uh, ask specifically. One, was there anything particular that you learned from that novel, the last story that you wrote, that you're now applying to your current novel? that you actually um, learned through that process? Yeah, there, I suppose there is. There's, there's one is wispy characters don't work. So characters who are passive, your characters do actually have to have an intent. So even if that's not necessarily, I'm going to go out and do something dramatic, they do have to be intent on something. So I've definitely learned that. And I've learned, don't write yourself into the book. It's just never <laughs> as interesting as you think. But I think the thing I've really learned is, is to have that sense of being taken somewhere from one place to the other whenever you're writing a scene. It's just make sure that it's actually taking the reader to the next stage, really, of the book. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to ask was, is there one piece of advice you find yourself returning to each time that you write? Yeah, keep going. That's fair. That's You've got to turn up. You've got to do the job. Okay, excellent. That's where we'll finish it, Harriet. That's Thank you so much for being my guest this evening. And enjoy your holiday. And I really look forward to reading your next book. And just take time with it and keep going. Good advice for all of our listeners as well. If you're writing, keep going. And that was the real writing process of Harriet Klein. If you're wondering why I wrapped up the interview so quickly and didn't give Harriet a chance to say goodbye, it's because the connection cut out and I was trying to be professional. However, I'm pretty sure you can hear my panic rising with every elongated and that I uttered whilst working out how to end that interview. Anyway, if you'd like to find out more about Harriet and her stories, uh, please do check out her website, harrietklein.com. Uh, you can also find Harriet on Twitter under the handle at Hare and Harriet. That's hair like a r- large rabbit, not hair on your head. And uh, this week I'm going to ask you to follow me on Twitter as well. There's a good chance you follow me already, but if you don't, my handle is at the real writing one with the number one at the end uh, because the real writing process is too long for a name on Twitter and it was the nearest thing I could think of. Anyway, the reason I would like to have you as a follower is because soon I'll be making some announcements about season two and the future of this podcast. And it'd be really nice to give you a heads up and listen to any feedback you'd like to give. Unless, of course, you're listening to this a long time after 2021. In that case, you know what changes I've made and this whole section is redundant. Anyway, uh, please follow me. Please follow Harriet. And until next time, my friends, or until the world ends. trusted friend or your sworn ally no it's the harshest mistress of all and life is just a chain a moment spent a thousand hellos and goodbyes maybe like ours can leave out its call I will keep you near 
have this 